these guys. And that desperation, what a beautiful place to be when we sense our deep need for God and His grace. A deep need for Jesus to come and show us mercy. And I always hesitate to move on from that moment where we're just uh, stripped of all of our defenses, stripped of all the, all the things that we put up to kind of keep us from feeling that, sensing that, understanding that, that we come naked and we come ashamed, yet we're clothed and we're given righteousness. <laughs> that Jesus clothes us in His righteousness. How mind-blowing is that? Oh, it's crazy. So good. Hey, well, today we are finishing up our Everyday People teaching series through Ruth. We've been in Ruth for, oh, since last year, actually. Uh, eight parts, eight times we've visited, and this is the eighth. Uh, we're going to try to bring everything to a close this week with Ruth. And uh, today's um, message is called, Our Place in the World. Our place in the world. Uh, we are about halfway through March, which is the third month of the year, which should come as no surprise to anyone. Um, but I have a hunch that some of you set a goal this year, a resolution perhaps, to read through the Bible. Anyone made the goal this year to read through the entire Bible? All right, I see those. Guys, come on. <laughs> read the Bible. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. I'm doing it again this year. Uh, I've set the goal many times, and i failed in that goal many times, and I think I know why. I think I know why you... Has anyone ever set that goal and failed at it? Okay, I see more hands. Great. I think I know what's happening. Here's what I think. You see, we all know the feeling. We are cruising along. We are making progress, reading through the entire Bible... Uh, moving ever so slightly day by day toward that goal of reading the Bible through in one year. We muscle through those early parts of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, and then wham! We run right into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Has anyone else found Numbers, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to be the graveyard of good intentions? Oh man, it's hard. Why? I think it's because, one, we run into those long, interminable lists of rules and laws, but also the lists of names, of tribes, of the begats. I call them the begats. You run into the begats and all hope is lost. You run into the begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and it begins to blur into a long, tedious list of long and tedious names, right? So what's up with all these genealogies in the Bible? Have you ever asked yourself this? Why do we need to know in 21st century America, why do we need to know who begat so-and-so back in Israel so many thousands of years ago? Why are these genealogies in the Bible? Why do we find so many lists of family lines and descendants throughout the Old Testament and even on a couple of occasions creeping into the New Testament? The people writing down God's Word thought it was important for us to know who begat who and who descended from whom. Right? Did I use whom right? All right. Any who or whom aficionados here? All right, I see that. Homes, homeschoolers. All right. um, what do we do with them? Okay, so here we are 
encountering these long lists of, of genealogies, the begats, how ought we respond? How should we respond to the long list of begats? Should we skip them? Is that allowed? Does that corrupt your goal? Can you really claim I read the whole Bible through if you didn't read the long tribal numbers and, and census? Do you skip them? Do you speed read through them? Or do you just ignore them altogether? What if, but here's the thing, what if the genealogies are significant? What if they are significant in their own way? What if they were saved for us for a reason? I don't want to miss that reason. I don't want you to miss that reason. What if they can somehow help us locate and orient Bible characters, the people we read about in the Bible, help locate and orient them in the story, in Scripture's narrative, but also, by extension, maybe help us find ourselves too. Maybe when we pay attention to the genealogies, we're more equipped to kind of see how we then fit into what God's been doing in the world. Tim Keller uh, says it this way, or he explains it or describes it this way, in, in ancient cultures, as well as in many non-Western cultures today, the self is defined and shaped by both internal desires and external social roles and ties. Your sense of self and of worth developed as you moved outward toward others, assuming roles in your family and community. If you ask a person in a traditional culture, who are you, they will most likely say they are the son or they are the mother or a member of a particular tribe or a people. And if they fulfill their duties and give up their individual desires for the good of the whole family, community, or their God, then their identity is secure as a person of honor. Do you see what Tim Keller is explaining there? That ours is kind of a strange culture in the sense that we no longer identify ourselves in connection to those who came before us. We don't see ourselves in relation to our family primarily or our tribe. We don't really get genealogies in our Western self-made culture. We primarily, here and now, we, we primarily define ourselves, we identify our modern selves by our individual accomplishments and our preferences, not by our family lineages or our family lines. We don't see ourselves in the community into which we are born. We have a sense or an assumption that we're, there's, there's no context into which we're born. We are just who we are. And that's enough, right? This is a relatively new and somewhat unfortunate state of affairs for us humans. Because I think we struggle. We struggle to adequately identify, to orient, and to locate ourselves in the world on our own. Have you found this to be the case? It's almost like we aren't enough to do this on our own, by ourselves. We struggle to adequately uh, identify, orient, and locate ourselves in the world of our, on our own uh, in relation to only ourselves, guided only by our emotions or our appetites. That always gets us in trouble, and it always uh, leads us into a pretty lonely, isolated, and self-absorbed place. Keller goes on to say, the modern self is crushing. The modern self is crushing. It must base itself on success or achievement or some human love relationship. And if any of these things is jeopardized or lost, you lose your very identity. That which you pin your 
authentic self on, if it's violated or taken from you, you've lost your very self. You no longer know who you are or why you are. Here's what I believe. We are purposeful creatures. Think about that phrase. We are purposeful creatures. At the very core of who we are, we have a purpose, a telos, a, a reason, a meaning for why we are here and, and what we are to be about in the time we are given. We are meaningful, purposeful creatures. As, as humans, we are born into the ongoing story, the grand meta-narrative of God's creation and recreation. As Peterson has said, Eugene Peterson has said in weeks before, we are born into God's great story, and that story is salvation. We are born into this overarching narrative. And what a shame, what a tragedy, if we're only looking at ourselves. We're not looking up and around and finding our place in that story. As humans, we are automatically born into history. We are automatically born into a story that has a past and has a future. We are deeply connected to a human thread. We are deeply connected. We are born holding on to a human thread, extending backwards in time and forwards in time, placing us in a long stream of begetting. You too are a begat. We are all begatted. All right? We are born into a genealogy. We just don't write it down. We just rely on Ancestry.com now. Or, or some family member that spent a lot of time at the archives and in the library trying to figure these things out. We didn't write down our genealogies, but nonetheless, you've been born into a long line of begats. Keller finishes up by saying, We cannot bear life by living only in the present, facing one disconnected event after another, pursuing only instant desire. We are future-oriented beings. And so we must understand ourselves as being in a story, in a story that leads somewhere. We cannot live without at least an implicit set of beliefs that our lives are building towards some end, some hope to which our actions are contributing. Something about us needs there to be a point. There needs to be a reason why we're doing what we're doing. We've got to be about something. Show me someone who's truly living for themselves and themselves alone, and that person is a miserable person, a small person, a lonely and isolated person. We cannot live without at least an implicit set of beliefs that our lives are building towards some end, some hope, to which our actions are contributing. I hope you resonate with that. Man, may God make our, each of our lives matter. May we join with him in this grand story he's been telling from the foundation of the world. Whether we recognize it or not, genealogies matter. Why? Genealogies matter because we matter. People matter. You matter. For people in the Bible and for us, genealogies help us find our place in the world. We just like Cotton Eye Joe, we are desperate to know where did we come from? Where did we go? Where did we come from? Cotton Eye Joe. Let's pray. <laughs> Just kidding, that's not where I'm ending. <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with this church? <laughs> Today, all this genealogy talk finds us one last time in the book of Ruth.
We have had a front row seat on the unfolding story of Naomi, of Ruth, and then finally of Boaz. With a bird's eye view in Bethlehem, we've seen God's goodness and faithfulness demonstrated through a simple farmer and two widows. This simple story of a farmer and two widows has given us kind of a, a glimpse of God's love, of God's care and safekeeping of his people. Through famine and loss and grief, we have watched as Naomi and Ruth were cared for and, and eventually welcomed into a new family with, with Boaz as their kinsman redeemer. Boaz spreading his garment over Ruth and taking her as his wife and in doing so extending God's kindness and mercy. This story serves then as an example. It's become an example, a, a testament of God's covenant care for even us, for all those who love the Lord. This story has become a covenant example. But this story doesn't just end with Ruth and Boaz married and Naomi blessed and everyone just living happily ever after. That's not how this story ends quite. Toward the end of the story, the closing credits start to roll, kind of strangely. It kind of merges into this genealogy. The closing credits, they start to roll in the form of a genealogy, likely added later to the original story, but included in order to drive home an important point. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ruth chapter 4, the fourth chapter of Ruth, and let's read verses 13 through 22, and I'll show you what I mean. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a re redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last, Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon, not Salmon, Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Have we heard that name before? Which David might this be? Alas, King David. This, this, this difficult... <laughs> risky story of Naomi and, and Ruth being taken in by Boaz was orchestrated so that God could achieve his work and will among the people of Israel and Judah. That this child born of Boaz and Ruth would become the father, the ancestor of David. Pretty important stuff, isn't it? Pretty interesting. So, who added this genealogy and why? Now, most agree that the main part of Ruth's story was written in the late 2nd millennium B.C., but that the genealogy was added later. And just because of the sequencing, it would have to be that case if Ruth's story was written down 
at the time or close to the time of it happening and then the genealogy including their descendant David at the end, it would have to have been added at a later time. So most believe that it was written down at the uh, late second millennium BC, but the genealogy added later after King David, either by a priestly writer or another contributor. Others argue for a later date where the whole thing was written down intact. Uh, so instead of being written between 1200 and 1020 BC, it was actually written down intact between 900 and 400 BC. So I'm telling you all this because as you study this, you might find that there's a variety of interpretations of how the story of Ruth was, was gathered together and preserved and, and written down. You'll find a variety of opinions regarding uh, its date and authorship and specifically this genealogy at the end. But here's the thing, there's really no doubt about the why. Why the genealogy? What's the purpose of this genealogy? Why is it there? Well, everyone pretty much agrees about why the genealogy is at the end of Ruth. Clearly, it is to emphasize the point. It is, it is to emphasize the important connection and the valuable role that Ruth played in redemptive history highlighting her as the ancestor of David, who was the ancestor of Jesus, right? Of course, the writer wouldn't have known this at the point, but it's pointing us into the future. Said, hey, this story matters. This story is important. It's pointing us in a redemptive direction. That direction leads us to King David. And now, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection, we can look back and say it also points then toward the Messiah. Points toward Jesus. So it leads us to David, but ultimately on to Jesus. The Expositor's Bible Commentary explains it this way. It is difficult to know why the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy. It is unlikely that the only purpose of the story was to lead up to a genealogy. And yet it is improbable that the book of Ruth would have found its way into the Old Testament canon apart from its connection to David. Listen to this. Perhaps the genealogy was included to remind the reader of the hand of God in the direction and continuity of history. Two people brought together by a highly unlikely series of circumstances became ancestors to the great king of Israel, David, who in turn for Christians provides an integral link in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I think if you've ever read Ruth, you've always thought, oh, this is a pleasant story. Glad it turned out well for Ruth and Naomi too. But maybe you, like me, have asked, well, why, but what, what's the story about? I mean, why is it in the Bible? Well, I think this points us, this, this clears that up. It's because what happened in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz's situation, how God was at work in that situation, blessed them, but it blessed us all. Through Ruth and Boaz came Obed, who was the ancestor of David, who was the ancestor then of King Jesus. We're all blessed by this simple story, once again, that takes place in Bethlehem. So how do I end this series? I thought about this, it's like, well, I mean, how do you end with like, genealogies rock, yes, let's pray. You know, I mean, I don't know. I wanted to kind of gather up all the things we've talked about over the past seven weeks and kind of 
bring them down to like, hey, what can we learn from this story then? What can we carry with us? I want this to be a portable thing, something that we can carry and remember with us. And, I, and there's three things in the end that I want to serve as clear takeaways from Ruth's story for us, okay? Let's finish with this. The first thing I'd like to say is this. Our pain and our loss does not get the last word. Our pain and our loss, they don't get the last word. God is faithful and He cares for you. When we find that God is faithful and that He cares for us, that is enough. Our pain and our loss, they don't speak louder than God's care and faithfulness. Uh, look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. First, he, uh, first, Peter, first Peter chapter 5, verses uh, five, 6 and 7. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time He will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God. Why? For He cares about you. All through Scripture, from the beginning to the end, we find a God who cares for you. And maybe we've heard that so much that it's lost its punch, but think about it. The Creator God of the universe, who sustains all that is, cares for you. He cares. Ruth was a nobody. Ruth was an outsider. She was a despised, widowed Moabite. Ruth could have easily joined Naomi in giving into bitterness. Joined Naomi in giving into defeat. But the thing is, what's remarkable is here, she never lost hope. She never lost hope in a better future. Uh, she never lost hope in a redeemable outcome. Have you known pain? Have you suffered pain? Have you felt the sting of loss? What has that done to you? I mean, those who felt loss and pain, who have suffered, you know how powerful that can be. It can really just change who we are and how we see the world, how we engage the world. What has it done to you? In the midst of that, can you, like Ruth, can you trust in God? Can you trust in God's faithfulness? Can you actually believe that He cares for you? I mean, sometimes we can believe that. We can give mental assent to it. But somewhere in here, we don't quite believe it. And frankly, I've struggled there. And I've had to repent of this. I've had to confess this to some trusted friends that I've struggled to believe that God really cares for me, cares for my wife, cares for us. Because there's been some really difficult and scary times. And in those difficult and scary times, is anyone with me? I mean, that's hard to cling to that and say, I know God cares for me. Nothing seems to uh, prove that to me right now. Nothing I see happening or am experiencing is, is convincing me of that, but I'm just going to hold on to my belief that God cares for me. Well, may I look to Ruth and, and Naomi and find God's care over time was proven true. God cares for you. It's not always easy. I don't think it was easy for Naomi. I don't think it was easy for Ruth, but it is possible. It is possible. You know, I mean, the Bible kind of skips over the process sometimes. You know, remember Naomi came back. She's like, I went away full. Now I'm empty. God raised his fist against me, and he has punished me, and I am bitter. You know, it, 
it's like people are like, oh, well, turn that frown upside down. She's like, okay, and she's better. You know, kind of skip that long, difficult process of her like learning to live in that new reality, step into that new welcome, that new opportunity that God had laid before her. And maybe you found yourself surprised by the process as well. I mean, we're not very good about that in the church sometimes. We expect you to like, oh, I'm sorry you've been crushed by this life situation, but cheer up, you know. Take a Philippians 4.13, call me in the morning. You know, we're kind of trite. We kind of expect it to be just a switch. But oftentimes, where we find God at work is in the long process, right? The process for Naomi and, and Ruth and even Boaz and us, right? But God cares for you. Just like Boaz going out of his way for Ruth, Jesus is going out of his way for you. Why? Because he cares. He cares. Look to Jesus. Jesus proves to us that God cares. So hold fast. Our pain and our loss do not get the last word. God is faithful and he cares for you. Secondly, I'd like to say this. It is never for nothing. Hear me, it is never for nothing. No part of your story is wasted. No part of your story is wasted. Look at Matthew chapter 10, a couple verses I'd like to bring to our attention. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Jesus says, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin. But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. That Jesus would get our attention and speak and say, hey, don't worry. God notices. God watches you. He sees you. He knows you. Look at uh, Matthew 19, 28 through 30. Jesus replied, I assure you that when this world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon His glorious throne, you, have been my, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. It's never for nothing. No part of your story is wasted. You see, Ruth's story played out among everyday people in a backwater place. It would have been so easy to overlook her and to dismiss her anonymous grief it would have been so easy to overlook and dismiss the anonymous grief of an overlooked, insignificant widow who was adrift in a man's world. I mean, I think we, we hear Bethlehem, we have so much associated with Bethlehem, but at the time, Bethlehem was a no place. I mean, it's just a small backwater town. Chances are, I mean, if we had to place bets on this, Ruth would return to Bethlehem in her situation and be lost. No one really would have picked up on her story. I mean, she would have been so easily overlooked in her anonymous grief because she was insignificant. And she lived in a man's world. Women's story didn't get uh, headlines very easily. But Ruth seemed to possess a deep trust, a deep trust in what was possible with her God, believing that in her life and in her situation, none of this was escaping God's notice. None of this was happening outside of God's uh, field of view. God noticed what was happening in her life. Even when chaos and uncertainty threatens to overwhelm us, we must hold on to hope. 
We are invited to rest in the knowledge that God is going to take all this stuff, all that you've been through, and put it to good use. He can take all that's happened to you and put it to good use. He can be glorified in it. And you can be blessed. Others can be blessed by what's happened to you. God can take it and put it to good use. It's never for nothing. No part of your story is wasted. Now lastly, I'd like to point out this. Never give up. Originally, I'd included that big quote from Winston Churchill. Never give up. Never, never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever give up. Something like that. It has a whole bunch of that in it. But I cut that. But hear me say this. Never give up. No one is beyond God's reach. No one is outside of God's goodness and grace. Everyone is welcome to come close. Everyone is welcome to find a home with Him. And you might say, oh, I've got no business with God. I'm too messed up. I've been hurt too bad. I'm damaged goods. But if we read the scriptures, if we read the gospels, we find that God's answer is like, oh no, that's perfect. Come on in. I'm especially interested in you. I will push my way through the crowd to find people just like you. The ones who are most convinced that God wants nothing to do with them, those are the ones I want the most. That God wants you. Everybody is welcome to come close and find a home. Are you an outsider? Do you feel like an outsider? Are you ready to give in and succumb to circumstances? I think we've all felt that temptation. However, Ruth's story should reassure us that God loves the least of these. God loves the least of these. Our poverty, our vulnerability, our nakedness, and our shame, they are no match for the love of God. None of these things are a match for the love of God and the mercy expressed to us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll hear that deep in your soul. Your poverty, your vulnerability, your nakedness and your shame, they are no match for the love of God and for the mercy expressed to us in Jesus Christ. All who trust in Jesus are welcome. So come close. Be found. Become known. Be covered by the garment of Christ and His righteousness. That's what's offered to us in the gospel. Dane Ortland, uh, in this book I'm reading, which is very good and has a great cover, I would recommend it, called Gentle and Lowly. Dane Ortland captures this thought, kind of brings it together for us. He says, The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply this. Open yourself up to Him. Open yourself to Jesus. It is all He needs. Indeed, it is the only thing He works with. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. It's your burden that qualifies you to come to Jesus. His rest, the rest that He offers, it is not, uh, it is not a transaction. It is a gift. His rest is gift, not transaction. Can you hear that? It's all that stuff that we've been through. The burdens we bear, that is what Christ wants us to bring to Him. That's where He does His best work. So bring it to Jesus. 
Ruth's story was saved for people just like us. Ruth's story was saved for everyday people. It was saved for you and for me for just this reason, so that we would hear clearly, Jesus loves you, so never give up. Jesus loves you, so never give up. No one is beyond God's reach. Out, no one is outside of His goodness or His grace. Everyone is welcome to come close and find a home with Him. Jesus loves you, so never give up. Let's pray together. Father, um, many of us here are weary and heavy laden. Yet it's to people just like us that Jesus speaks when He invites us to come close. Just as He invited Ruth and Naomi to come close. Just as um, He showed His kindness and care to Ruth and Naomi in this story, uh, Jesus desires to show His kindness and care to us as well. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, bring it with you. Bring your heavy burden. Bring that which has caused such pain. Let's lay it down here. May we all find the boldness, the courage, the humility to come close and to reveal our wounds and to lay down our burdens, our, our heavy loads, and let Jesus show us His gentle and lowly heart. Allow Him to care for us. God, we can so easily find ourselves in a weird place where we're hurting so badly, yet we're so unwilling to let that be known, especially to you. I don't know if it's fear or it's trust issues or what, but we have a hard time coming close sometimes and being covered in our nakedness and shame. But God, we all need you. God, I pray that we'd give up on that pride that says we're doing okay, because we're not. Jesus came for this. Because there is a problem, we're not okay. On our own, we're, we're suffering in anonymity. And we're lost in a hopeless situation. But uh, I pray that uh, as your people, we would be the first to respond and come running saying, I need healing. I need hope. God, thank you for being so kind to us. Thank you for showing us such mercy in Jesus. I pray that we would be willing and eager to receive that. God, I pray that you would do a work in each and every one of us this morning, just as you did a work in Naomi's life and Ruth's life and Boaz's life, how you blessed all of us through their faithfulness and their willingness to trust in you and to receive your loving kindness. God, be with us this morning. I know there's people here who uh, are carrying heavy loads. They've been wounded pretty deeply. And even though they're here singing words with their mouths, they're not believing those words in their heart. I pray that you would do a, a spiritual surgery of sorts in each of us so that we might be healed. And God, give us patience in the process that it's not going to sometimes be a switch that's, that's thrown or just a, a simple uh, fix. But help us day by day believe something new about you and about us and about what's possible in our future with you. Oh, God, be with your people, and I pray that we would be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we prepare to finish up today, I've got a couple of announcements. That clock is broken, so I have no idea where I'm at time-wise. So I guess I'll just honor your <laughs> you as my friends and just finish. Uh, students and kids, uh, is there anything for students tonight, Curtis or Kendi? Crickets? Yeah. Oh, they're in the, yeah. I don't know what's going on with students. Check Facebook.
They're here and they're having sandwiches. It's here and it's sandwiches. Do they have band practice? Do we know? I don't know. Okay, check the Facebook group. But I believe that's what's happening. Yes. Uh, as far as we do. Pat and Lottie did a great job on puppets today. Uh, awesome. I'm excited to see more and more kids uh, learn puppets. Uh, Pat's got a real gift and a real uh, desire to teach that craft. It's kind of lost in the church <laughs> these days, but maybe we could discover it. <laughs> We're uh, pioneers of <laughs> rediscovering Puppet ministry, Sunday school, all kinds of things. So if you want to be involved in Kids Focus, uh, just let me know. We've got some great volunteers lined up, but we always need some subs. And uh, there's other opportunities to get involved as well. So uh, we view the giving of tithes and offerings as an intimate expression of faith and worship. There's multiple ways you can give. There's baskets in, at the back. Um, well, there are baskets somewhere for checks and cash. Oh, where is it? Oh yeah, the red box. I keep forgetting about the red boxes. Yeah, back there there's a red box for cash and check. There's an iPad for debit cards. Online you could give uh, through Apple Pay or PayPal on our website. And then there's Venmo. So see Heather Whitford if you want to do Venmo. Uh, hey, uh, today we started our nursery ministry, trying to kind of get back to a sense of normalcy and really uh, steward well the families and kids that God sent our way. Uh, next Sunday we're starting our School of Sunday. It's not Sunday school. But right before worship, we're going to start an adult and a youth Bible study time, which will involve prayer, uh, getting into God's Word, and just fellowship. So starting at 9.45 next Sunday morning, I hope you'll come. Uh, we got, we're going to meet in the conference room and some of the classrooms back there. And just uh, really spend more time in a discipleship environment where we're joined together and say, yeah, we want to follow Jesus, and this is an important time. This is a valuable opportunity for us to invest in that endeavor. So I hope you'll come next Sunday, 9.45. This coming Saturday is Love Thy Neighbor, our, our mobile food pantry with Victory Mission. Here at the church from 10 to 11 a.m., uh, we will be serving our neighbors and people coming through, uh, giving them food, giving them kindness and just prayer, uh, just really getting to meet our neighbors. So I hope that you'll come and help us out with that. I know Sal's coming. I think Steve's coming. Who else is planning to come Saturday to help with Love Thy Neighbor? Okay, so we should have a good crew. Uh, we'll see lots of people, so come if you can. Uh, we are in the season of Lent, and that leads up to Good Friday and then up to Resurrection Sunday or Easter. So our Good Friday uh, gathering will be on Good Friday at 6 p.m. here at the church, and then we'll celebrate Resurrection on Easter Sunday to follow, which is uh, April 4th. Uh, following Easter, the next Saturday, we're starting our Spring Institutes, which my wife will tell you a little, little bit about that. Uh, it's a Saturday night. We'll have institutes here um, from 5 to 8 if you want to drop your kids off. The institute Bible study actually starts at 6.30. Uh, that, is, that gives people that have children time to have a, a date. Um, you can come even if you don't have children, but you don't need to drop them off first. If you do want to sign your kids up, you need to go on to Open Acres Facebook page, and there's a sign-up genius for dropping your kids off. And so to distinguish it from the volunteers, I called it uh, Open Acres Institute to drop your kids off. So sign up uh, to bring your kids so we can make sure we have enough volunteers um, to watch them. And uh, Adam's going to tell you about the Yeah, we'll spend eight weeks together working through uh, N.T. Wright and Michael Bird's The New Testament You Never Knew, exploring the context, purpose, and meaning of the story of God. It's a video-driven uh, and then discussion-based Bible study. So it's going to be awesome. 5 to 6.30 is date time, and then uh, 6.30 to 8, we'll be studying uh, this together. So should be good. So uh, get signed up, and you'll be good to go. Anything I missed? All right, well... Kelly, you want to come on up? Let's go ahead and stand and pray as the Lord taught us.
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now may the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thanks, everyone. Have a good afternoon. Perfect. Thank you.